Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. All right, Matthew chapter 19, Am I Good Enough? What I want to start off with is we jump into this section of Scripture Before we go to verse 16, which will be uh, 16 through 30, will be the emphasis. I want to start off in verse 1, and I want to develop that there's really today four types of people that we see represented in chapter 19. We could probably develop more, but for the sake of today, we'll look at four types of people. And in verse 1 through 3, we're going to be introduced to three of those type of people, and then in the section we look at today, we'll see the fourth. But the first type of person is found in verse 1. This will be the type of person that chooses to reject Jesus Christ. Now, it's kind of an obscure verse. If you read it, it says this. Now, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So I want to show you guys, and I'm going to put up on a slide a map of Israel during the time of Jesus. And I want you to understand how we can develop from this section of Scripture a people that rejected Jesus. Because at this time, Jesus would have been in the north part of Israel, known as the region of Galilee, and a city he often ministered in, in the city of Capernaum. And he was on his way down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and we know through the study of Scripture that would be coming up by the time he gets to Jerusalem, that would um, usher in the final week of his life. And even as we sang that song, Hosanna in the highest, that's how he would be welcomed as he got to Jerusalem. But you'll notice the red line. And the red line in that map, it takes you from Galilee, the north part, down to the area of Judea, which is the area of Jerusalem he was going. But Jesus didn't take the most direct route. He actually says he went to the east side of the Jordan River. And you can kind of see with the Sea of Galilee up towards the top, the, the Jordan River is what's running in the north-south direction um, from, the, from the Sea of Galilee. And, and you can kind of notice that in that same map is Jesus went, when he went to the east side, that would have added what was, would have been an 80-mile journey added about 40 additional miles to that 80-mile journey. So you have to ask the question, why? Well, Luke's gospel tells us why. If you want to turn over to Luke, I'll show you how verse 1 represents the people that have rejected Jesus. Because the most direct route for Jesus to take would have been to go from Galilee through Samaria into Judea. But in Luke chapter 9, we get some additional insight. And remember, the gospels work together in harmony. You can really develop a full picture of the life and ministry of Christ by reading all four gospels. And of course, the word all works together in a general sense. But... uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we see why Jesus went this other route and not the most direct route through Samaria. It says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went, they, as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, and they went to another village. 
So why didn't Jesus go the most direct route? Because he wasn't, uh, the invitation was rejected. You can go back to Matthew 19, but keep in mind some of the cultural barriers of the day of Jesus. In that time, the northern part of Israel, the Galilee, was primarily people that had returned from captivity in, in Assyria, right? There, there were the, they were taken captive about 700 years prior, and they, you know, those that had returned. So Galilee was kind of that northern part, and even at times they would be referred to as the Galilee of the Gentiles. Samaria was uh, commonly inhabited by people that had returned from captivity in Babylon, uh, you know, and so uh, they were, some of them were what would be considered a half-breed Jew, and so the, Ju- uh, the area of Judea and Samaria were often at conflict, but Jesus had already had ministry. You could probably remember from John chapter 4, Jesus had ministry already in Samaria where he was received. He met the woman at the well and the people recognized him as Messiah. But for whatever reason, as he wanted to come through, they found out where he was going and they said he is not welcome to come through. So those who reject Jesus, and, and the thing to remember with those who reject Jesus is he didn't force his way in. He said, okay, I'll go a different route. I'll go a different way. And we'll look at that a little bit more. Um, the verse 2, we're going to see our second group of people. In verse 2, it says that great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. So now we see Jesus going not just an 80-mile journey, but Jesus now adding about 40 miles on that and people still willing to go and follow, to forsake and go and follow him because they believed and knew this is the chosen one. This is the anointed one. This is Messiah. And I pray that this represents many of us here today, those who have chose to follow Jesus. Verse 3, we see the critic or the skeptic, those who have a knowledge of God's word, uh, but those who who like to uh, criticize or to, uh, you know, find fault or error in it. In verse 3, it says this, the Pharisees, those were the religious leaders of the day and also a political group, they came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So they're looking to stumble Jesus with this question, either get him to say something against the the law of God or get him to say something that would offend uh, the Roman government. And Jesus would answer that question. We won't focus on that today because I want us to jump forward with, you know, thinking of the title, Am I Good Enough? I want us to consider those three people and then I'll add a fourth. And the fourth one is this. It's somebody that would choose to follow Jesus but has the wrong motives and the wrong understanding. And that's what we're going to see with this young man, this young rich man specifically in chapter 19, verse 16 through 22. But before we jump in, I didn't warn you guys, but I am going to give you a quick pop quiz. You ready? Simple questions, yes or no. Feel free to say them out loud. First question is, is there life after death? Are heaven and hell real places? Am I, or you, not me personally, but am I good enough to receive eternal life. So as we, A plus by the way, as you guys answer those questions, you guys pass the pop quiz, but how do we gauge that? Of course, we're gauging that from the Holy Word of God and through the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. But I want to give you guys some results of how these questions were answered based on our culture. From studies given between 2005 to about 2016, I took a compilation of the results, so um, I I believe they're pretty accurate, so don't quote me on this uh, exactly, but let me give you some general answers to those questions. Is there life after death? Over 80% of people, and this would be like if we walked out to the city of Aurora, 80% of people would answer yes. 
including even in that, there's a percentage of people that considered themselves agnostic and even atheists that would still answer yes to that question. I'd be very interested to talk to that group of agnostics and atheists and kind of get their opinion, but just to hear it, um, nonetheless, 80% of people answer that question. Now, in question number two, are heaven and hell real places? 60% of people answered yes. Now, it's a significant drop, and it's interesting because I would read those two questions really as one of the same. But as these were, you know, with these polls and surveys, 60% would answer yes, and it would be a slightly higher, but there's even another percentage that says, I believe in heaven is real, but hell is not. And then, am I good enough to receive eternal life? Well, that wasn't one of the questions, but the question on the poll was this. How does somebody inherit eternal life? And of course, this is given to people of a lot of different backgrounds and belief systems, so we could go on for a long time to talk about all the different answers. But let's see what Christians said. What did the Christian population of that poll say, those that were professing believers in Christ? Well, it said that among the professing Christians, how does one receive eternal life? 30% said by faith alone. Under 30%, just under 30% said it was by actions alone. Just over 10% said it was a combination of faith and good works. And then there was even a percentage that said they didn't believe in eternal life. Kind of weird, but all the same. However, this study came about, we, we see that there's confusion even amongst the church on that last question. Now, another interesting statistic with that is that over 50% of people questioned in that poll, Christians, admitted that they believe People of other religions will receive eternity in heaven even if they don't believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So we see some confusion even in this question. So although we this morning, many that spoke up and answered, we got those questions right according to the Scripture and according to the leading of the Holy Spirit, I would say that the church at large is confused on that third question, which is why I wanted to focus on that third one. Am I good enough to receive eternal life? Am I good enough? Okay, so I want to give you some scripture before we jump into Matthew 19. But the first scripture is Ecclesiastes verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 11. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says this, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. And the first aspect I would say in, in looking at those questions is eternity is something God has placed upon the hearts of mankind. God has put eternity in our hearts. God has said that there is something better than this. That's why even a small percent of atheists and agnostics would still answer the question yes to life after death. I believe the human race has received this confirmation that there is something more, there is something better than just what we see and know here. The next scripture I would give you is what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 26. When he said, but when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. I believe another aspect and way that we will develop the surety of these questions is through the leading of the Holy Spirit. So we know eternity is real because it's been placed on our heart. We know it's real because God's word proclaims it to be real. And we know it's real because the Holy Spirit testifies that it's true. And I want you to notice today that when I gave you that quiz, it was just that. It was a quiz. It wasn't a survey. It wasn't a poll. I recognize that there's a lot of different opinions on those questions. But somebody's got to be right. 
There's got to be a way to find those answers. And, and just as we recognize those four types of groups, we know that there's diversity and there's a lot of people even confused. There's people that have just straight rejected Jesus, those that chose to follow, those that are critical, and even those that are following but with the wrong motive and understanding. So let's notice together today, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. I'm going to start off, read verse 16 through 22. If you would follow along with me, it says this. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept for my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." So this young man comes to Jesus. He's one of the ones that followed, chose to follow in some capacity. Maybe he met him on the way, but he comes to Jesus with this question. What good thing must I do to have eternal life? Now, what I notice with Jesus is Jesus really, um, you know, he gives this, uh, he gives an answer that really tries to develop a further understanding. But before we jump into Jesus' answer, I want you to consider this. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of different opinions, uh, you know, with, within those poll that we are given. But there's something specific that we should recognize with Christianity as a religion that's different than any other religion. And that's, Christianity teaches us that it is not about the good works I do that makes me right with God. It is by faith. It is by faith. That's really what separates Christianity from really the hundreds, thousands of religions, or you could even say the dozens of uh, common religions. What separates Christianity from those is, is the simple fact that it is by grace through faith and not of works. But remember, 50% of Christians would say in that poll that people can receive eternal life even if they don't believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Some were confused to say people are saved because of their, uh, you know, because of their works. Or another percentage was saying because it's works and faith combined. But I would challenge, you know, and for some, and, and like I said, I think as many of us got that answer right, I would, I would have to say there's some that are confused. And I want to give you another scripture to kind of reconcile with that, and it's this. Hebrews 11, verse 6. That it says that it is impossible to please God without faith. That anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So how do we come to God? We come to God by faith. It, it can't be, you know, we don't earn God's favor. We don't please God apart from faith. We please God through our faith and through sincerely seeking him in faith. So Jesus knowing this in his heart, but reconcile, recognizing this question when this guy comes up to him, says, good teacher, what good thing shall I, that I, shall I do that I may have eternal life? So Jesus humors him in the answer, and he gives him this answer in verse 17. He said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, in humoring this, he gives a thought-provoking answer. The first one, he was telling this young man, do you understand why you call me good? 
Do you understand why you call me good? There's only one that is good, and that is God, right? Now, side note, this isn't Jesus uh, denying his deity, as some have read this verse and believe it is Jesus giving a denial that he is equal with the Father. I don't believe that at all. I think Jesus was showing this young man and answering his question, he was developing the error in the question. And he says, why do you call me good? Do you understand that definition of good? Because there is one who is good, and that is God. And the other thing that he was developing is this. Is, well, if you want, to, uh, you want to know the good thing you can do to have eternal life, well, then fulfill the commandments. Keep the commandments. Measure yourself by these standards and determine if you're good enough. Right? That's where, that's where we're at. And then he says, verse 18, he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus gives six of the Ten Commandments. Remember, this young man would have been a Jewish man. Grown up, obviously, you could see that he has uh, an understanding of the commandments. He, he was probably familiar with the law of God and said, well, there's 613 laws. Which ones do you want me to keep? So Jesus nails down and narrows down to the Mosaic law, the moral laws of God. And he, he nails down to six of the Ten Commandments. says, well, we'll keep these. Right? Keep these. And remember the Ten Commandments. You can find them in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 through 17. And consider those, these moral laws of God, this standard. And I often look at the law as a mirror. It shows a reflection of our heart. But with this, notice the, the answer of this young man. So Jesus gives him, you know, answers the question of which ones. And so in verse 20, the young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? I think I can develop and say with assurity that this young man must not have been present at the Sermon on the Mount, or if he was, he wasn't paying close attention. Because when you look at the things Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness, honor father and mother, Jesus expanded on some of those in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he said about murder. Jesus says, you've heard us say you shall not murder, but I tell you that if you look at, uh, or if you have hatred and anger towards a brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Or with adultery, he says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. But what I, that's probably how I would have approached this young man. I would have probably stopped there and shown him, oh, no, you, you haven't fulfilled these. Let me show you uh, how you've broken the law. But Jesus was tactful. And I think that there's a good point of application that I pull from that is this. That we should be tactful in our evangelism and pointing others to a relationship with God. And what I mean by that is that we shouldn't be argumentative and divisive. I know sometimes I naturally would go there. I would read that, and if I was having this conversation, I would want to show this young man how, yes, you have murdered in your heart, or how you've committed adultery, or you're going to tell me you've never stole anything, and Jesus didn't go there. Jesus said, okay, I'll give you that. And, and he was tactful, and you'll see in verse 21 where he took it, but he just took it a different way. He didn't take the bait of argument and, and being divisive. And I just, I think it's a good thing as we are called to go out. We're being ready to be sent out here in just a few minutes, literally. And as we go out into our culture, let's be tactful and tasteful how we present the gospel to those around us. But there's another perspective I see in verse 20. As the young man said, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? As a youth pastor, this was kind of the emphasis, if I would have taught this to youth, this is where I was really praying in this direction. But I believe a lot of our youth 
Well, a lot of our youth do say, I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But there's a really sad statistic that says over 70%, I believe it is this, you know, this day, that over 70% within the church, church-wide, 70% of young people, middle school, high school, will forsake their faith, backslide, or walk away, whatever, whatever term you want to use, by the time they're in college and as a young adult. And, and you know what I recognize with this young man is he really believed he was good enough. He really believed that he had done enough good to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think at some point, it's hard because as parents, where do we often train our kids? We train them that if you do good, you will be blessed. And if you do wrong or bad, you will be punished. And obviously, there's, there's wisdom in that. But we have to be careful in, in relationship with God that we teach them that exclusively as it relates to God. Because we know blessing doesn't always come just based on good. And punishment or hard things don't always happen just as a result of, you know, of doing something bad. And we have to, I would say this, that to be careful as we train our kids to just view God's blessing as being performance-based. Be careful with that. And, and, and what I mean by that is this, is grace is what allows us to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is by God's grace, his love and kindness, unmerited and undeserved is what God gives us and allows us to enter the kingdom. And so teaching our kids the grace of God is one of the most important things we could do. This is what this young man missed. He missed the grace of God. It was all dependent upon him. I'm going to do these things. And somehow in his mind, he was convinced he had never committed murder and adultery or stole anything, bore false witness. He honored his father and mother and all these things. But notice verse 21. Jesus, Jesus checks his heart right here. In verse 21, Jesus said to him, well, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's important to note that Jesus isn't using this as a law or command. This isn't the law, okay, now if you want to have eternal life, what you need to do is sell everything and follow me. But what he was showing is he was exposing the weakness of this young man. He was convinced that he had fulfilled the six commandments Jesus gave. So Jesus pulled out to him the first of the ten commandments. You shall have no other God but me, the Lord God. Well, money had become an idol. Possessions had become an idol in this young man's life. They had become more important than God. And he was sorrowful when Jesus said this. Oh, okay, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Here's what we notice in this, is this young man, the whole thing Jesus was developing tactfully was this question was wrong in the beginning. There's one who is good, and that is God, and God's standard of good is perfection. So in order for us to be justified before God, based on our own merit, would require perfection. This is what Jesus was, was showing him. So that's why he asked the question, why, why do you call me good? Do you recognize? And I, I would say, I don't think this young man was making a proclamation of Jesus being God. I think he had the wrong definition of good. And that's what Jesus was showing. And we have to ask the question, I believe, in our own hearts today. Because in that same application, I wonder if God is doing a work in our hearts. That if he were to examine us or we were to have, you know, allow him to examine us in this way, what would we value more than God in our life? What would be determined that we would place at a higher place or, or that we would say, 
maybe in our hearts or even vocally, that this is more important than my relationship with the Lord. That's kind of what we see here. And what's really sad in verse 22, that the young man heard that saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's where we see that fourth representation, right? The fourth representation of this one that chose to follow, but had wrong motives and understanding. And he didn't do by faith what Jesus asked him to do. He actually walked away, which revealed the reality of what was going, really going on in his heart. He wasn't really following Jesus. He was following to how this could further bless me. He had it made in this life, and he was looking to make sure he had it made in eternity. He had the wrong motive. He had the wrong view. And in verse 23 through the rest of the chapter, Jesus is going to start to show uh, the deceitfulness of riches. I want you to, let's read uh, the rest of the chapter together, and we'll develop a few more things. In verse 23, that Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard, heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So he uses this even as an opportunity for a teaching moment for the disciples. Even though this young man walked away, Jesus directs it to the disciples, to those that were the followers. He says this, let me give you some further understanding and instruction in this interaction. So back in verse 23 and 24, that he said, I say it is harder, it is hard, sorry, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, why is it so tough for the rich person to enter the kingdom? Because oftentimes, riches and possessions will cause us not to depend on God, but to depend on self. Right, and that's what Jesus was revealing. A lot of times, that's, that's what happens when we have a lot. We're not really seeking God, you know, more fervently in those things. But, you know, what I, when I would look at verse, oh, sorry, verse 24, I want to make another, uh, just a side, side note. It says that it's easier for, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus was really using uh, what's known as a hyperbole. A hyperbole is an exaggeration. And he was taking the biggest known animal there in the Middle East and the smallest known hole, you know, so the camel going through the eye of a needle. It's kind of a silly analogy. It's kind of like when he said, you know, why do you try to remove a speck of dust from your brother's eye when you got this plank from your own? So he's using this exaggeration and really showing, the, almost saying to the disciples, there's impossible to enter the kingdom of God. Now, understand in this culture, this culture looked at rich people as a blessing from God. And it was very confusing. It was a very confusing thing to think that, well, 
this rich person has all these things, it must obviously be because God has blessed and anointed them. So notice verse 25, that the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Because you know who was at the Sermon on the Mount? The disciples were. Many of them were there. And they would have heard Jesus say things like, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. And now he's saying, you know, that, you know, the rich man is so, it's impossible for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are just blown away. Like, who then, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven? I want to pause here. I want to pause here and I want to talk about uh, this emphasis of money because I don't believe Jesus was calling this young man, saying that this is a command to the young man to sell everything or, or saying just in a general sense that money is wrong and bad and people with riches, uh, they have it all wrong. But, but I would say it's an often vice for people. Oftentimes is what we can use in this world as something that is what, we, what motivates us what causes, what causes us to, you know, to be what we, what we are and to pursue what we pursue. And I want you to look at this deceitfulness of riches in 1 Timothy. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Before we move on, I think it's an important thing to reference. And, and keep in mind that the Bible, the Word of God, works together to, get, to develop the full thought and full point. And, and what I would say again, money is not evil. It's the love of money. That's what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. That it says that it is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I'm sure many of us can relate to poor decisions we've made in the pursuit of provision, in the pursuit of money. Many poor decisions. And it's something that um, has happened before and something that will continue to happen until the kingdom of God is ushered in. But remember, it, wasn't, it doesn't say here that money is evil. It said it is the love of money, this pursuit of money, that is the root of all kinds of evil. But then Paul, who writes this letter to Timothy, would say in verse 17 through 19, he gives further instructions still in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So notice the command to those who are rich. It doesn't mean that you can't, um, you know, for those that have a lot of provision, be at rest today. It doesn't mean, oh man, I'm not going to make it to the kingdom. But know what the, what the instruction is this, not to be haughty or prideful in those riches, not to trust in those riches, but in the living God. But then he goes on to say, God gives richly all things to enjoy. So there's a, a place that God, it is a blessing from God to have provision and to have money, but not in the sense where you're just using it for yourself. Notice as it goes on in verse 18 and 19, it says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may hold on eternal life. See how those things connect together. So let's go back to Matthew 19 as we look at the answer to the question, who then can be saved? The disciples now were confused. The disciples are, you know, wondering, you know, we've given up all to follow Jesus, but notice what he says. In verse 26, Jesus says, he looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. 
And this is the important thing for us to recognize today, that it is not our goodness that gets us into the kingdom of heaven. It is the goodness of God. It is the goodness of Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was the only man to fulfill that. God came down and dwelt among men, became flesh, and took upon human flesh and lived a perfect life. And in that perfect life, he was taken to the cross, a Roman cross, and he died for the sins of the world. For every man that has ever lived, man, woman, child, Jesus died for us all. Jesus died for our sin, but then the great news, the good news, he rose again on the third day. And so when he says what is impossible with men is possible with God, it's, you know, this is, that's the heart of it. That's the heart of what Jesus was showing the disciples, that nobody can out of their own good inherit the kingdom of God. But it's what he had already been predicting and telling them as they're on their way to Jerusalem. He had already said the Son of Man is going to be given up. The disciples didn't fully get it, nor will they until it actually happens, but that's kind of the, the emphasis there. So, so keep in mind this, this for a point of application. To be religious, performing good deeds are not enough to save us. It can only be through a life fully surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ. A lot of times, even as well-meaning Christians, Bible-believing, confessing Christians, we can believe in our heart, even though we might give the right answer, We can believe in our heart that the way I earn favor with God is my church attendance, how much time I spend in prayer, my devotion life, uh, how often I serve, how I serve, how I give. And those things are important, but remember, those are all works. And if I'm doing those works with the motive to earn favor from God, I've missed it. If I'm doing those works out of a faith-driven surrender to Jesus Christ, that's where it becomes valuable. Because as I surrender in faith, Those are things that come out of a love relationship, not out of a forced fear of discipline or correction. And so that's essentially what we're seeing in this section of Scripture. Jesus says, what's impossible with men is possible with God. And then the the vocal disciple, this is Peter. Peter is the vocal disciple. And, and you know, the rest of the disciples, if 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 Peter wasn't there, the, the chapter may just end there. But Peter asked another question. He stood up. He said, okay, Jesus... This doesn't fully make sense to me. Notice what he says. He says, he, Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? You know, as Jesus is calling for this full surrender, you know, with Peter and the disciples, keep in mind how they started with the Lord. They started with Jesus walking up to Peter and saying, Follow me. He was a fisherman. Peter would walk up and say, follow me. Or or the writer of this gospel, Matthew, he was a tax collector, had a prominent position, lucrative income, working for the Roman government. And Jesus would walk up to his tax table and say, Matthew, follow me. And he would forsake all. So Peter speaks up for all of them. He says, well, what do we get? What what shall we have? And, And notice the answer. Jesus says in verse 28 and 29, Jesus said to him, said, verse 28, I should say. So Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, this is Jesus speaking, you know, uh, you know, the millennial reign and the kingdom of God to come, that in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he gives a direct promise to the disciples here. 
to those 12 disciples, Jesus gives direct promise. And I believe this, this is in the millennial reign. Obviously, my prophecy is off on predicting flights and sports events, but I could tell you I think I'm on on this one, right? That this is the millennial reign. This is in the millennial reign where Jesus Christ, a thousand years after the great tribulation, where Jesus told the 12 disciples that they're going to sit on the 12 thrones, and during that thousand-year peace, they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And just a side note, we know that uh, one of the disciples that was there uh, was Judas Iscariot. Uh, Judas Iscariot, I don't believe, uh, assuredly, will be uh, sitting on that throne. So which disciple filled his place? There's some debate on that. Was it Matthias, you know, from the book of Acts, who was, uh, you know, that they made the council to replace uh, Judas Iscariot? Or many, many more, more common belief is Paul the Apostle. So that one, I'm not going to make prediction. I'm just going to say we'll find out in the millennial reign. I'm looking forward to being there, and we'll find out there. So I have no additional additional insight on that of which apostle or disciple took that place, but there's a great promise that Jesus gave to them directly. But then verse 29, Jesus gives a universal blessing. He, he says, in everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake, for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. What a blessing to receive from the Lord's mouth. What a blessing to hear that, you know, the things that we surrender, Jesus gives a promise that I'll restore hundredfold. But then we see, you know, it's unfortunate ministries, movements that have taken verses like this and really made them to say something they don't. You know, it's like, you know, passing around. It'd be like if I said, okay, so because of this verse, I'm going to pass around this, con this collection plate. And I just want, whatever you guys sow, whatever you, whatever you sow, God's going to give you a hundredfold. I, I don't believe, I do believe God will bless us provisionally. Yes, that's part of his blessing. But I don't think that's the primary blessing. The primary blessing, this hundredfold that Jesus speaks about, I would say it's ultimately fulfilled through the very power and presence of the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus said, I will leave you, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to give you the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will take up residency in your heart. He will teach you all things. He will remind you all things. He will give you peace in all things. That's the ultimate hundredfold blessing. I, I believe that the hundredfold blessing is more spiritual than it is practical. It doesn't mean that there aren't practical ways that God will restore hundredfold. Yes, he will absolutely bless provisionally. I've seen it time and time again in my walk with the Lord. And I think of that hundredfold where he says he was talking even of relationships, that if you forsake a relationship, keep in mind in this culture, especially in the early church, to profess the name of Jesus was, assured, was to surely be outcast by your family, by, you know, that they would disown you. And so in, in Jesus saying that, that there was a greater, uh, I believe, trials and tribulation that came upon the early believers. But he said, I'll restore a hundredfold. And what I see, even as I look out into this church, and I can look at, you know, in my short years with the Lord, almost nine years now of walking with the Lord, I can say I forsook a lot of friends and people I used to walk with and hang with before I came to the Lord. But I can look out at this group and see a lot of familiar faces. I can see a lot of people that the Lord has allowed me to develop relationship and friendship with. And it's a, that's one of the blessings. That's one of those hundredfold blessings. But you know what's even better than that hundredfold blessing? Verse 29, Jesus says, and inherit eternal life. And inherit eternal life. Amen. 
I want, think about heaven, right, as we clap to that. Amen. Like, think about heaven. Like, heaven, that's, God put eternity in our hearts. What is heaven going to be like? You know, sometimes we, we see the cartoons where heaven is portrayed as, you know, playing harps on a cloud or whatever. Or, you know, we see the worship of, uh, in heaven in the book of Revelation, and we wonder, well, is heaven just going to be like some perpetual, unending church service, right? No. Heaven, is, he- heaven has been shown through Scripture to be all the blessing and benefit of this world as we know it, apart from the effects of sin. So the relationships we have will be like that, apart from the effects of sin. No more anger, divisiveness, uh, you know, backbiting, wars, right? You think about this creation. This creation will be in heaven, apart from the effects of sin. There'll no longer be, you know, the natural disasters. I'll no longer have to pray for the safety of someone to get home because, you know, again, this will be the things that will be done away with in the established kingdom of heaven. I very much look forward, and I know that Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians that it's more wonderful than words can even express. And so, you know, if, if heaven and eternity is something you wrestle with, just know that that is the best blessing that we have been promised of God. Verse 30, Jesus would wrap up with this and gives this kingdom mindset. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Again, he's going back to the place of prominence here in this world. The place of prominence in this world, you know, those that are mighty in this world, there's going to be this reversal that we see in heaven where those that are in the low position here on this earth will be in a high position in heaven. Another aspect of heaven, we'll see, we'll have responsibilities. It's not some perpetual worship service. We're going to have, well, we'll have the presence of the king and amen to that, but he'll be giving us things to do. He'll have responsibilities for us. And he says, the first will be last and the last first. And so keep in mind that is oftentimes we might covet what somebody else has, money, possessions, looks, things like that. You know, that's not from the Lord. It's not from the Lord for us to desire to be anything other than who he's made us to be because he has a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. And greatness in God's kingdom is humility, gentleness, and serving others in the name of Jesus. Greatness in God's kingdom is those things. That that's what the first will be last. And we know in our world system, to be humble or in a place of humility doesn't often get us very far. It can be discouraging as a follower of Jesus Christ that when we operate in a place of humility or in a place of gentleness, often people that are gentle are taken advantage of. Or, or when you think of those that serve, or, or like Paul say, I choose to be a bond slave for Jesus Christ, that those who serve are often looked down upon. But in the kingdom of heaven, just know that you're building up that heavenly reward. And I know sometimes it's hard to receive as as we look at that in the future sense. But just know even now, that hundredfold promise, God has given you the tangible blessing through the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the, The power of their spirit to bring about love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in our life. That's what God is doing in us right now as we patiently wait for that promise. I'm going to give you a a quote from Randy Alcorn in line with that last verse. And I love in the book Heaven, it's a great book, by the way. If Heaven is something that you're curious about, it's probably uh, the best book I know that's out on print that you can find uh, in, in relation to understand Heaven better. But it says this, that the more we serve Christ now, the greater our capacity will be to serve Him in Heaven. 
And I look forward to what God would have for me. I look forward to see who will I be reporting to in heaven or who might be reporting to me. It's going to be pretty cool uh, to think about those things. But all the same, that's what Jesus says. Now, go back to the poll, and we'll wrap up for today. Back to the poll, there were those three questions. Is there life after death? And, of course, we answered yes. Are heaven and hell real places? Of course, we answered yes. We see aspects of that through the scripture we read. And am I good enough to receive eternal life? Keep in mind the four types of people represented in the section of scripture we looked at. Right? We, we looked at the, you know, those who rejected Jesus. We look at those who choose to follow Jesus. We looked at those who were the critics and skeptics of Jesus. And we looked at that, the one that chose to follow with the wrong motive. And what I see with this young man is he would have answered that question yes. And even if he had the right answer with his mouth, he had the wrong answer in his heart. And I would just challenge us as a church to consider that. I would challenge us to keep in mind that even though we have the right answer in our mind, do those answers reflect the condition of our heart? Do I live as if I believe there is life after death? Does my life reflect that I believe heaven and hell are real places? And it's not just that I've received eternal salvation and amen to that, I'm justified before the Father, but do I believe hell is a real place? That those of my family members, friends, the people that I come across, that apart from Jesus Christ, they are bound for an eternity separated from God. That do I live like that? Do I really believe? Not just do I have the right biblical answer, but is my heart in tune with that? And then that last one, am I good enough to receive eternal life? That do I really recognize the fullness of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross? The fullness of Jesus dying for my sin. The fullness of everything I've done to him that deserved eternal separation but I couldn't do anything to gain it back besides say, Jesus, I believe you lived for me, that you died for me, and that you rose again from the grave. It stumbles so many people. It's that easy. It has stumbled so many to think it's just like that, to truly believe that, that Jesus did all that for me. He did all that for you. As we would wrap up today, I want to give you three points and then we'll pray and send you guys out and after, you know, Christ of Fire is going to come back out after this. But I want to give you three things to consider in this study. And the first one is this, that following Jesus in faith will lead to full surrender. That nothing is more important than to live for the kingdom of heaven now. And I pray that as you would leave today, that you would be more heavenly minded than earthly minded. That you would recognize that not to forfeit your eternal reward for temporary benefit of this life. And as good as life is, and the blessings it can be, God said, enjoy all things richly, but just know that this isn't it, that heaven is so much better, that we would be focused on heaven, that we would be ready. If Jesus revealed something to us, that we weren't ready to surrender, that we wouldn't walk away like this young rich man, but that we would say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to operate in faith today, and I'm going I'm to lay this down. You're right. This has become an idol in my life, and I'm going to surrender it in faith. I would say something else I noticed in this section of scripture that we should dedicate our time, talents, and resources to the Lord, not with the expectation of a return on that investment, but with the motive of sincerely seeking after him. And I think it's an important thing that we can take as application as we leave today. Just say, you know, what areas, maybe I don't have a lot of provision. Maybe all of us don't have a lot of those resources, but I could say all of us have time. And, And God has given each of us talents and giftings. And how are we using them 
for the kingdom of heaven, not just for our own benefit, which isn't bad to use for us, but also to use for others. What am I doing? God, what is, am I in my faith relationship through seeking God, using the things he's given me, my time, talents, and resources for his kingdom? The last thing I would give you is that in eternity, to remember that we will receive the fullness of that promised blessing. But our ultimate reward right now is God's tangible presence, and yes, I say tangible presence, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as much as we might not be able to see, feel, uh, whatever other tangible, you know, words you use to describe tangible, I can say the evidence is beyond confirmed. That those who have, whose lives have been changed, when the love of God has been poured out into your heart, this newfound hope that you have, the joy you have, how God has stirred you to patience, how God has stirred you to kindness and goodness and self-control. These are all product of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the tangible evidence of God in our life. And read Galatians chapter 5. Just do it in your own time and, and just ask the Lord, examine me, God. Examine me. And so I want to pray for us and, you know, consider those four types of people. And I would say as much as that is representative of our culture, that could even be representative of this room. That there might be some here today that are, have rejected Jesus. And I want you to know we pray for the unbeliever often. We pray for those who don't know Christ often. But I know this, in my praying, I know God will not force himself on the unbeliever's life. He will give invitation. He will draw you through the power and presence of the Spirit. He will send laborers. He will send people to come talk to you. But he never forces himself in. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open, I'll come in and dine with him. So if you today represent those that have been rejecting Jesus in your life, I encourage you today, let today be the day that you would believe you have sinned against a holy and righteous God, that you would know that Jesus died for you and that he rose again, that he's alive today and says anyone that confesses that and believes that shall have eternal life. We, we see the group that's representative of the followers of Jesus, that those who surrendered and would go the extra mile. I pray that that would be us, like in our heart's condition and our heart's resolve, that we say, Lord, I, I choose to follow, no matter the cost, no matter the surrender. And I pray that we'd be encouraged in that. Even thinking this, not being prideful in that area, but saying, Lord, I recognize, even as your word says, to those who think they stand, take heed, lest they fall. So Lord, check my heart. Help me to follow you more. I, I think of the critic and the skeptic, and maybe there's some that just disagree with God's word. I think of what Jesus said in the preceding verses of that chapter when he talked about marriage and God's design of marriage, one man, one woman, one lifetime, and how many people, even professing believers, disagree with that. And there's, you know, the, there's the critic that would say, God, I disagree with you. And I just pray if that's you today, that's a hard place, but just allow the Lord to soften your heart. He's the only one that can do it. If you disagree with God with something, take it to him directly. Say, God, I don't understand this. Give me understanding. And then that fourth person, which might be even represented here today, that you chose to follow Jesus, but your motive and understanding is off. And maybe you're following Jesus only for how it can bless and benefit you. And I want you to know uh, and I want to encourage you, that's probably the toughest place to be in out of all of those groups because to be self-deceived, to think you're good with God and not be is one of the most dangerous conditions. And I pray in humility that we would allow God to humble whoever, if that be anybody here, that we would just allow God to humble our hearts if we, we think I'm good with God, but truly inherently, as God has put eternity in our hearts, inherently we know we're not. 
So God will reveal those things. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. And, and Lord, I want to emphasize, even in this prayer, that you are good. You know, you said, Jesus, there is one that is good, and that is God. And we recognize, Jesus, you are good, and you are God. You are a good God that gave your life for us. Father, no matter what group we stand in, that's a truth for each of us that we can take. That you cared so much that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Father, I personally thank you for that sacrifice, as I know it costs a great, it came at a great cost to you. But also at a great blessing to know that you conquered death. That we don't have to be afraid, but to know, God, that there is an eternity waiting, an eternity of blessing and promise and so much things that we can't even wrap our minds around. God, I want to pray right now for maybe the person in this room that is the one that has rejected you, that is ready, God, to commit their life to you. And, and if that be anyone, I want you to pray in, in this heart of prayer, I want you to pray this with me, that you would say, God, I realize and admit that I have sinned against you. And I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. And I believe that Jesus Christ rose again from the grave. And I tell you that anybody that prayed that, in their heart and sincerity, I want you to know that the Lord's word says, God's word says, that those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Lord, as we continue in this time of prayer, Lord, and just committing the rest of this day to you, God, I ask that you do the work in our hearts, God. We do ask, God, to examine us, to reveal, God, what area have we put of more value in this temporary world above you? And Lord, would you work in us to will and to do? God, we know that faith is what brings us to you, but good works will follow. I pray that those good works aren't what we try to use to earn favor, but those good works are, are an evidence of a faith-based relationship with you. So in all these things, I pray them in the holy name of our Savior Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.